and the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So last week in her sermon on John 6, Bonnie talked about the line, the line between living faithfully and not living faithfully. So how do we know what that line is? Where do we work that out? Well, one of the ways, I guess, is from Scripture. Well, one of the common phrases we hear, which may appear on the screen at any moment, yep, there we go, is God helps those who help themselves. It's a great phrase, isn't it? How many think it comes from Scripture? It comes from Scripture? Not come from Scripture. And if you're undecided, you're not sure. Well, it doesn't. You'll not find that anywhere in the Bible. But that doesn't mean it doesn't kind of give us some clues about the line. So how many people think, even though it doesn't come from Scripture, it's still a useful way of working out whether that's where the line is? So those who think it's still a useful way, yeah, there's a few. Those who don't, divided. Well, most Christian scholars would say it's not helpful. Because if you flip it around, it would say God does not help those who do not help themselves. And that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, the exact opposite of that is found in the Bible. God helps us even when we don't help ourselves. That's all about grace. It always starts with God's action, not our actions. Whereas this phrase would make it sound like it starts with our actions, and when we take the first step, then God can act. But actually God is acting all the time. In our lives, in the world, it starts with God. We respond to what God is doing. So it's tricky, isn't it? It's tricky to know where the line is. Well, that brings us to this week's Gospel reading, and in a sideways kind of way, which I'm not going to talk about to to James. So we have finished our five weeks in John 6, five weeks where we have slowly reflected on and circled around the theme of Jesus being the living bread from heaven. We've in a leisurely way approached it from different angles, going deeper each week as John went deeper. But now we're back in Mark, and it's direct and fast-paced and short and simple. John does not have time for circling around and re-engaging the one issue again and again and again. It's just boom, here it is, moving on to the next thing. So that's how it's going to be until the end of this church year. So just to remind us where we were up to in Mark, so now here's a map. It's quite hard to see. So, and if I had the pointer, that would work, but it doesn't. So, Jesus was in Nazareth, which is up here, over on the side. You see that, Nazareth? Kind of just above Galilee, the circle there. There's, there's Galilee. So he was there, he went home, and that didn't go well. Uh, so uh, he sent out the disciples, 
uh, to do some kind of hands-on mission stuff, two by two. Uh, no, just stay with the map, thanks. Uh, and then um, while he's out doing the two by two thing, uh, we have the story about the depraved dinner with uh, Herod and uh, the death of John the Baptizer, and then the disciples come back and um, a crowd gathers around them. So that's somewhere on the Sea of Galilee, which is the big blue thing in the middle. Um, so that's quite easy to see. And um, then we have the feeding of the 5,000, which is a kind of a contrast to Herod's meal, uh, which was a depraved dinner. The meal that Jesus offers is uncalled for generosity and hospitality. So though that meal is deliberately contrasted. And then they say that the disciples, he sends the disciples off on a boat to go to the other side to Bethsaida. So if you look at the, at the map, uh, there's Tetrarchy of Philip and then there's a circle there. That's where Bethsaida is on the lake. And actually right next to it is Capernaum and right next to it where this story this week is set in Gennesaret. So they're all, they're all in the same kind of area at the top of the Sea of Galilee uh, and um, somewhere between Gennesaret, which is on this side, and Capernaum, I think, but I remember my geography, is uh, where uh, the Mount uh, for the um, Sermon of the Mount is. So you actually look down on Capernaum. It's not miles out in the countryside. It's kind of right there in the town. So that's where our story is set. But down here, we have Jerusalem, so right at the bottom of the map, you can see some circles. So one of those is Jerusalem, and one of them is Bethlehem, and I put that there just so you could see where, um, where, where Bethlehem is, and it's just, just down here. And uh, when I was in Jerusalem, the Armenian who took our tour down to Jerusalem kind of 40 years earlier when he was a tour guide, they did walking tours. So they would leave Jerusalem and the old city and they would walk to Bethlehem and then they would walk back. So it's walkable. That's how close that was. <coughs> uh, and down here is Jericho, just so you can see. So that's the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. The Sea of Galilee is the second lowest lake in the world and the lowest is the Dead Sea. So uh, Jer Jerusalem is high and then you drop miles <coughs> down into this valley which is very low, it's well below sea level so the day that I was there it was raining up in the hills on one side it was raining up on the hills on the other side and we were in blue sky because they're kind of just this big drop so all the clouds were on either side so we are up the top of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is there at Gennesaret, and he's healed people, he's turned up. Uh, on the way there, um, the disciples were having a hard time on their boats, and Jesus walks across the water, and they're a little freaked out by that, and he gets in the boat, and they land at Gennesaret, and there's healing. And while he's at Gennesaret, while he is there, a whole group of people from Jerusalem, some Pharisees and some scribes come down. Now, when it says... All the Jews do this. 
Most scholars now would say actually that would be better translated with the Judeans, and by the Judeans they mean the Judean elite. So it's not the Jews per se, it's the small group of people based in Jerusalem. So they turn up and uh, these leading Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, and they want to check out what Jesus is doing, they want to check out uh, whether he's kosher or not. Uh, And they're none too happy that some of his disciples are not washing their hands before eating. Because in their view, they were breaking some pretty important rules about being ritually clean. So, as an aside, this is not a rule about washing your hands for personal hygiene. So, one of the people on Tuesday morning was very disappointed Jesus said this. Said what he said, because she said, well, washing your hands before meals is an important thing. It gets rid of the bugs. And it's like, well, that's true. But that wasn't the issue that was at play here. This was about the rules around being ritually clean. And so when they say wash their hands, they're talking about washing their hands up to their elbows. Uh, so it was used a lot of water and it took a lot of time. And it wasn't the only time you did it before during the day. You did it regularly during the day. So the people who could do that needed a lot of time and they needed a lot of water. And if you were somebody who, woman, wife, mother, daughter, was the one getting the water from the well each day, you didn't have a lot of water. So wasting it, washing your hands up to your elbows every time you did something, just wasn't on the cards. So this is something that the pious, and they were pious, they were religious, they were deeply religious people, but they were also wealthy. They had the time and the water resources to do this. And they were able to then, because they were able to do this, say, well, look at us. We're cool with God because we do this. We are ritually clean. We have washed away all the impurities. And you people who don't do this, well, you're not ritually clean, so you're not cool with God. We are better than you. So these rules had become ways which one group of people could then say, we are so much better than you. Which sounds terrible. And we frown when we hear it and say those naughty Pharisees and scribes. The trouble is, we do exactly the same. We have all sorts of ways in which we as Christians are better than other people. Are more moral, are more pure. We have all sorts of little rules and it depending on which church you're part of, whether you're in with God or not. So we aren't any better It's just our rules are different. So we need to keep that in mind as we read stories about that. We are just the same as they they were. Which takes us back to what Bonnie was talking about last week and being on that line. So Mark then uses this story of Jesus to address a few really important themes. Like the function of the law. Which to be fair to Mark because he was writing to a non-Jewish audience and the law had actually caused division within his community between those who were uh, Jewish Christians and those who were non-Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. It was, the law had become a division within his community. So his basic line is, we're done with the law. So one of the, we didn't actually kind of read all the way through. We skipped bits, and one of the bits we skipped was where it says... And thereby Jesus said, no food is clean or unclean. So he's binning all those laws. 
So Mark is writing to a non-Jewish audience. Matthew and Luke, well, they don't quite take that line. So they tell the same story. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. He definitely did not take that line. Jewish Christian audience. So the law was still very important for Matthew. And Luke kind of just doesn't mention what the consequences are of it at all. So how they interpret the story is different depending on their context. So, but that's not how we might understand Jesus doing this. So, it would seem for Jesus that the law was still relevant, but it wasn't to be read in terms of making or keeping yourself pure, and thereby saying, well, I'm better than you, because look at me, I'm doing these things and you're not. But it was to be read in terms of well, the phrase that he uses, the coat hanger, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbour as yourself. The law helped you do that. So when you were saying, well, look, I'm better than you, well, you're not loving your neighbour as yourself, are you? So you're not using the law correctly. That's not what the law is about. For Jews, the law is a gift. It is a gift from God because they are to be a gift from God to the world. And so the gift of God was to help them live that out. But when the law is used to kind of barricade yourself and to say, well, we're special and you're not, then the purpose of the law is defeated. So Jesus is trying to drag people back to the original purpose of the law, which is to be a gift. Mark would say that that's how all of Scripture should be read. It should be read in terms of how am I to, to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind? How am I to love my neighbour as myself? Scripture helps us do that. Scripture for Mark was to, supposed to bring healing and health in communities and was not supposed to be used as a means of division and harm. It was never supposed to be used in terms of I'm better and more worthy than you. So that's his basic kind of beef with how the Pharisees and the scribes were acting. Well, Jesus uses this approach to offer an alternative focus of attention. Rather than being concerned about how we behave, the things that we do, Jesus says the thing that we should be most worried about is what's going on in our hearts. Because what's going on in our hearts is acted out in our behaviour. So if we pay attention to what's going on in our hearts, then the behaviour should sort itself out. For Jesus, it was motivations and desires, longings and hopes, and how they shape behaviour. The behaviour that Bonnie reminded of us of last week. All of that reminded me, and there's some terrible spelling mistakes in my notes here, of um, the story of the early desert fathers and mothers who lived in the deserts of Egypt and Syria in the kind of uh, 300s. So they were people who didn't like what was happening uh, in the church when the church became official under Constantine and um, it kind of became okay to be a Christian and the pressure was off. Uh, They didn't like that. They didn't like what was happening inside the church. So they went out and lived as as hermits in the deserts. 
So there wasn't a lot of scope for behaviour, really, because they kind of lived uh, on their own in, as hermits in the desert for years and years and years. The thing that really kind of got to them was those inner things, their heart, their desires, their longings. And they spent their life focused on that and uh, struggling with that with God's help. And some of those people wrote extensively about that experience, and that experience was brought back to the West by people like John Cashin and Benedict of um, Nurser, who was the founder of the Benedictine Orders, which is probably the most, wasn't the first monastic orders in the West, but it's probably been the most influential monastic order in the West. He quoted extensively from John Cashin. And one of the things that John Cashin did Developed was a description of our inner lives, which we know today as the seven deadly sins. But actually, he had eight categories, and he didn't talk about them being deadly sins. That was Pope Gregory the, the Great who decided to simplify it all and just kind of have these seven deadly sins. But John Cashin was talking about these eight things that go on within us that lead us away from God. So in his writing, which was based on the desert fathers and mothers, he, he developed ways in which we could pay attention to what was going on in our hearts and then ways that we could address those things going on and basically allow our hearts to be shaped by the heart of God. So uh, it was a, I mean, very influential in the West, except when it kind of got sidetracked by people like Pope Gregory. And his, his writing basically said, we need to pay attention to what's going on within us. When we pay attention to what's going on within us, then our actions will be shaped by that. Now often we just think it's behaviour, but actually it's our intentions that shape our behaviour. Another way of putting that is that who we are is more important than what we do. When people look at us, they see our character, and our character is borne out by our actions. So we might say the right things, but if our character doesn't bear that out, people are going to go, well, that's actually, that's just hypocrisy. I guess that's what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees and the scribes. You might say the right things, but your character doesn't display the things that you're saying. So... Cashin and others offered us a way to pay attention to that inner life, to allow our hearts to be shaped, as I said, by the heart of God, that we might become the image of God's compassion and generosity and justice, shaped by divine love. Well, I'm not going to get into John Cashin. That would take me a couple of hours at least. But one of the ways that people have found really helpful to paying attention to what goes on in our hearts is the daily examine. The daily examine is a is a time spent each day asking, when have I been drawn to God? And when have I been drawn away? Now these don't need to be big things. So the, I think these actually come up on the screen. Yeah, there they are. These don't have to be big things. They can be very small things. But they're ways that we learn to look at ourselves and look within ourselves and, and what motivates us and, and what's going on in our heart. It's the way we learn to truly see who we really are. 
And so at the end of each day, a couple of questions. What, my, what am I most thankful for today? How have I experienced God in this day? How have I been drawn towards God? And what am I least thankful for? How have I been led astray? Where have I walked away from God this day? And to explore why. Why am I most thankful for those things? And why am I least thankful? What does that display about myself? So Christians down for the last four or five hundred years, probably before that, because the guy who made this popular was St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. <coughs> and he was a bit of a magpie, really. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't make up stuff himself. He just b- borrowed from all sorts of traditions and, and made them more popular. Um, that was his gift, and it was a great gift. Uh, and so this is one of the things that he uh, developed for the Jesuits, uh, which has become very popular um, amongst lots of people today. So I invite you to think about each day, just spending a bit of time thinking about what are you most thankful for, what are you least thankful for, what does that say about what's going on in your heart. And you might want to record those reflections, you might not want to, but it's a way of finishing each day with that and then praying about that, placing that in God's hands. When we do that then, well, then that line that Bonnie talked about last week becomes a little bit clearer. When we do that, it allows God to work at our hearts a little and for us to intentionally join in that work of having our hearts shaped by God's love and compassion. And we can be the people that we say that we are.